look into. We're going to talk about what's called theological anthropology. Who human beings are in relationship to God. So snuggle up, because it's time for us to dive deep into who God created us to be. Plus, it's also still Eastertide for the next 42, for the next 42 days. So this gets to be another, another Easter sermon. That all right? All right. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 to 17. Aaron? It's on? Okay. These are the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord God made the heaven and the earth, when no bush of the field was yet in the land, and, no and the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. The word of the Lord. Uh, pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have chosen to reveal to us who you are. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that you would open your word before your people. Lord, may I be an instrument of your peace of your comfort, and of the challenge that you have for us. And Lord, may this, may, this, may this word be a beacon of your good news and of the life that you have called us to live in you. We pray these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. So we're continuing in our Genesis series. Oh yeah, you can, you can, you can be seated. So we're, we're continuing in our Genesis series with Genesis 2. In Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3, we have what, what many call the first creation story. God's creating the universe out of nothing in the space of six days. We spent time gazing at the Lord's creation, as well as reflecting on the fact that, that after God was done, he rested. We talked about humans being created in the image of God and pieces of what that means. But Moses, the traditional author of Genesis, isn't quite done yet. Because in Genesis 2-4, you see these words. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, these are the generations, shows up ten other times in the book of Genesis. And whenever it shows up, something, something important is about to happen. There's about to be a significant development. And so what's going, to, what's going to happen, what's going to be described in these next few verses is worthy of our attention. And what do we see? we see the creation of human beings. What was told to us in day six of the first account is fleshed out in Genesis two. We got a little bit about human creation in that first story, but the second is all about the pinnacle of God's creation. It's all about the crowning jewel of his glittering masterpiece. It's about the cherry on top of the Sunday if the cherry were even more delicious than the Sunday itself. Human beings. So who are we? And what are we here for? My sermon can be summed up in the following points. The passage is about humankind's creation, calling, and commands in the context of covenant. Turn to somebody in the car next to you and say creation, calling, and commands 
in the context of covenant. Creation, calling, and commands in the context of covenant. I want you to know that this sermon is for you if you are a human being. Regardless of race, ability, gender identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, all those categories, if you are human, this is for you. So before I get to these points, I think it's important to explain the covenant that I'm talking about. And Josiah hinted at this before. What we're talking about is the covenant of works, also known as, from our catechism this morning, the covenant of life. Now, I don't want you to freak out because I said works. Works are very important in the Christian life, and anyone who tells you otherwise is trying to sell you something. We, we Protestants cringe at the word because of Luther, but, but the biblical fact remains that we were as Paul says in Ephesians, right after saying that we're not saved through our works, he says that we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So I know it's, I know it's hard to shake off that discomfort. If it helps, you can do so bodily. Shake it off, as Taylor Swift says. All right. A covenant is necessary between God and human beings because we don't have any right to relationship with God. It's entirely a privilege. And it's entirely a privilege that we were created with. Take a look at verse 7. Verses 5 and 6 set it up, and then you see in verse 7, Then the Lord God formed the man, Hebrew ha'adam, of dust from the ground, which is in Hebrew ha'adamah. So even, even in the words for man and the words for ground, you see that, 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 that human beings are linked, linked to the earth. And it says that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Now, don't miss this. Brothers and sisters, this is the creation point. God made us in such a way that we could be in relationship with him. This is absolutely crucial. God made us in such a way that we could be in relationship with him. We were told a few weeks ago that we were created in the image and likeness of God. And that's all well and good, especially when we think of universal human dignity. As Basil of Caesarea, a fourth century church father, preached, our body is quite worthy to be entirely molded by God's own hands. He did not command an angel. The earth did not automatically cast us forth as it did the cicadas. When you understand the one doing the molding, the human is great because they are nothing because of the material, but great through the honor. But there's more to this than just dignity. This is about our constitution. This is about what we're made of. This is about the stuff, the kind of stuff that we're dealing with. God didn't have to make us in such a way that we could be in relationship with him. There are plenty of religious expressions, excuse me, religious expressions and mythologies in Israel's own time that said otherwise. In the Enuma Elish, the, the Babylonian creation story, humans were created to be slaves of God. And in a sense, this makes more sense. I mean, if you think hierarchically, I mean, God's the one who created us. It would make sense for us, so much lower than God, to be his slaves. But that's not how God created us. No, this creation point is that God formed us lovingly intimately, like a master potter, out of dust, and then he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Then we became fully human. Only when spirit was added to dirt did we become who we are. 
And so the verse ends, and the man became a living creature. And I want to reiterate, this is, this is, uh, things, things that I'm saying here are for men, women, and sexual minorities. This is about all human beings, without exception. Human beings become truly human at that point, when body and soul are united. And here's, a, and here's a bonus that's going to be relevant later. We, we became human when spirit was added to dirt. Christ became human when dirt was united to spirit. More about that later. So what were we created to be? First and foremost, we are creatures compatible with our creator in a way that rocks, dogs, trees, and flowers are not. He made us for relationship with him. And so the text of Genesis continues. It continues with description of the foliage, plus these, these two interestingly named trees, and the rivers to set the scene, all very, very important. But God's action with the man is what's central. Take a look, take a look at verse 15. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Point two, calling. Somebody say calling. The word vocation comes from the Latin word vocare, which means to call. That, and, when, and when you think about your vocation, you often think about your job. That's our, that's our common cultural context. It, it even finds its way into our conversation. What's the first thing that you often ask strangers? What do you do? And there's a sense in which that's right. Because we were made to work. It's an unavoidable biblical fact. As much as, as, much as laziness might be enticing, it's contrary to our created purpose. As Paul would tell the Thessalonian church sometime after the Garden of Eden, you don't work, you ain't going to eat. So is my translation. Now, now, now hear me out. I'm not, I'm not saying that if you're unemployed, you're failing as a human being. Circumstances, injustice, sickness, all these things may keep you from, from employment. Plus, your, your worth is not bound up in your economic value. It would be sinful for me to suggest that. But even in unemployment, the Lord still calls us to be employed. Employed in acts of love. Employed in acts of justice. Employed in acts of service. Employed in acts of cultivation. Sloth, or laziness, is one of these seven deadly sins because it ignores the good that God has provided for us and it ignores the good that God has commanded of us. If I sat around and played God of War and napped and watched Bob's Burgers all day, which, I mean, I'd love to do that, but, I would be communicating with the world that that's the best use of my time. It's a good use of some of my time, but not all of it. You see, brothers and sisters, human beings were created with a particular calling, a particular vocation, to work and to keep the garden. And those words, work and keep, are alternatively translated serve and guard, especially in the book of Numbers, specifically with reference to those who work in the tabernacle. That is the place where God's presence was housed. Now, in a, in, a, in a few weeks, Slim is going to, Slim's going to preach on creation care, so I'm not going to do too much of that here. But I want us to understand that our purpose on this earth is to steward the good gifts that the Lord has placed in our midst. And that means his creation. Why? Because God has chosen to reveal himself through it. In Romans 1.20, Paul says, For his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. Where? In the things that have been made. So what's he saying? He's saying that God has chosen to use creation to reveal himself. And so our role as human beings is to cultivate his creation. 
So our job, our vocation, our real calling is to steward what God has chosen to use to reveal himself. To work and to keep it, to till and to tend it, to keep and to guard it. Just as the priests were supposed to keep and guard the tabernacle because it was the site of God's presence, so Adam was tasked with, with tilling and tending the garden, to cultivate it, to make sure that it flourishes. And that is what humans were created to do, to touch the entirety of the earth and to make it flourish. Now this applies broadly, brothers and sisters, to the way that you navigate the world. Nothing you do as an image bearer of the creator, nothing you do is mundane. If you work with words, if you work with art, if you work with music, if you work with children, if you work with concrete, if you work with wood, if you're stacking boxes at an Amazon plant, zoom out. Your job is order making. Your job is creation shaping. Your, your job is world building. Your work is never worthless. Why? Because of who you are and because of who God created you to be. As long as your work isn't fundamentally sinful or fundamentally rooted in creating opportunities for sin, this applies to you and your work. So we've got our creation. Somebody say creation. That, that, that we were created to be in communion with God. And we've got our calling. Somebody say calling. That we were, crea that, that we were, call that were called to care for creation. And, and I want to reiterate what I said about that first point. God didn't have to call us to this particular work. He could have just created us to just hang out in the garden so he could watch us like, like lab rats. But instead, he created us to get our hands dirty. He created us to facilitate his will and to be in relationship with him. And you know what a great example is for us to think about how different humans are from the rest of creation? Angels. Yeah, you never think about angels, do you? Well, we're going to this morning. The, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 16, asks, how did God create angels? It answers that God created all the angels as spirits, immortal, holy, excelling in knowledge, mighty in power, to execute his commandments and praise his name, yet subject to change. In short, angels are super powerful, super knowledgeable spirits created to do the will of God. We know them in two camps, good angels and bad angels, otherwise known as demons. That's the subject to change point. Scripture tells us that upon angelic sin, they're cast into hell. And so it's important for us to remember that both humans and angels are created beings. Angels are never supposed to be worshipped. They're never supposed to be exalted, even though they're super powerful, super knowledgeable spirits. Whenever they show up in scripture, people are always terrified. And, 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 and if you look in the scriptures for, for, for what kind of what angels look like, they often present themselves as warriors, like terrifying spiritual beings. They're much more powerful than us, but they're not God. They're spirits, like God is spirit, but they're not God. And the other thing about angels is that they do not share our creation and calling. They were created to execute God's commands, to go where he sends them, in essence, to be his servants. That's their calling. And when they failed, they failed their mandate and were punished. And we live and breathe in the midst of spiritual beings, some of whom have been sent by God to protect and serve us. Others, have been, others seek to kill, steal from, and destroy us. But we're fundamentally different from them. Because we were created for communion with God, a relationship with God that no angel is invited into. 
We were called to participate in God and to participate with him in the cultivation of creation. And that is a supremely elevated status. Yeah, we're lower than the angels in some ways, but we're higher than the angels in others. And that's the reality that leads us to this third point, the command. Somebody say command. We had to come back to those trees, didn't we? The tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. At first glance, those are, those are good things. Life is, life is good. The, the knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. Yet God, in verse 16, offered a command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Here is God's grace paired with his sovereignty. Adam and his soon-to-be-created bride would have free reign over all of creation and all of the fruit therein, but there was one tree that they could not eat from. They were not to grasp at the knowledge of good and evil apart from what God gave them. And in doing this, God reveals that part of this relationship that he's chosen to, to have with his people is one where obedience is a big deal. We need to be reminded that no matter how lofty our creation might be, we are still created. And we will always be created beings. Always. There's a marked difference between us and our creator. It's not an unbridgeable gap, but it is a big one. And so what does that command mean? There's a lot going on here, but, I, but, I'll, but I'll summarize it briefly in these, in these four points. First of all, we're supposed to desire and strive after good things, but only in the way that God tells us to. Remember, he doesn't tell us that the tree is bad. As a matter of fact, the entirety of scripture points to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil actually being a good thing because God does not create bad things. But he still says don't eat from it. Point two, just because something looks good doesn't mean that it's good for you. Thirdly, God is the one who's in charge, not you. He knows what's best for us, hence why he tells us in his word. His commands remind us as human beings that however lofty we may be in the eyes of God, we ain't God. But the last point is perhaps the most important. In this command, what God is revealing is that there is no life of true happiness apart from obedience to God. And when you put this creation, calling, and command together, dear brothers and dear sisters, you get what's called the covenant. Known as the covenant of works, or as we confess this morning, the covenant of life. This, this agreement that God chose to sovereignly and graciously offer eternal life, eternal life of communion with him to us on one condition, perfect obedience. Now, he didn't have to do this. He didn't have to do it at all. But by his grace, he made this gracious, wonderful covenant with humanity. He created us to participate in him. He called us to participate with him in the work of cultivation. And he commanded us to obey him. And what did we do in Adam? We mucked it all up. And we muck it up daily. How much of your day is spent actually thinking about fulfilling this purpose? 
Because this is your purpose. If, if anybody asks you on the street, what's your purpose in life? Here it is, to participate in God, to participate with God, and to obey God. And just because the covenant was broken doesn't mean that our purpose has changed, and it doesn't mean that the conditions have changed. It's still the case that there is no eternal life apart from perfect obedience to the Lord. So do you feel that? You feel that inadequacy? That, that deep gnawing feeling that you don't measure up? That is the fall that you feel. Someone's going to preach on that in a few, in, in, in a few weeks, but, but our sin mucks up that bliss. And as a result, we live under the power of God's curse. That's what that last, so that last verse, in verse in, in, in verse 17, referring to the fact that in the day that they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. In the day that they ate of it, they experienced the curse of God, death. They didn't physically die at that moment. But their relationship with God was broken in a way that can only be described as death. But God was not going to let his people go. God was not going to let the devil take his children. God was not going to let death take his precious creation. God was not going to let sin finally corrupt his good work. God would not be defeated by a curse because the God that we serve is a God of justice, yes, but he is a God of mercy. And so what he did was he revealed another plan in addition to this original plan, another covenant, but this one would have a different head. That first one, the head was Adam, but the second one would be with a better Adam, a new Adam, a second Adam, a last Adam, a father of a new humanity, an Adam who could actually fulfill that first covenant, an Adam who would not fall to the lies of the devil, an Adam who would be able to live the life of perfect obedience to attain eternal life. This Adam would go by another name, he would be called the son of the most high. His name would mean he will save his people from their sins. He would be called the prince of peace, the son of God and son of man, the alpha and the omega, the living one who died and behold, he is alive forevermore. His name is Jesus. You see, brothers and sisters, this, this second plan determined by the triune God, father, son, and spirit was that one of their number would take on flesh that they would hint at such a plan for hundreds of years while giving the people of God real signs, real seals, like the, like, like the sacrificial system, like the tabernacle, like, like the temple, that, that God would communicate over and over with his people, I will save you. I will be your God. You will be my people. That he would free his people from physical bondage in Egypt, but he would indicate that this freedom that they were meant for was even more significant than that. And then, in the fullness of time, the eternal Son of God would take on flesh. He would take on a human body, a human soul, and live a fully human life where the first Adam was dirt, with spirit from above, the birth of the second Adam would be a redemptive reversal. Spirit with dirt from below. The first Adam became a living soul, but the second and last Adam became a life-giving spirit. As, as, as people united to that first Adam, all we experience is sin and death. But in being united to the second Adam, all that flows from him is redemption and life. 
the eternal son of God would enter into the muck and mire of human life. He would live as a sinless Adam in a sinful world. He would go to a brutal, humiliating, shameful, and cursed death, even death on a cross. Why death on a cross? Because he would be taking our shame, our hurt, our abuse, our sin, our wretchedness, our corruption, our curse upon himself. He became accursed to make us righteous. And in his death, he did it. In his death, he won. And a few days later, he got up, brothers and sisters. It's still Easter for another 42 days. He still rose. And when the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead, the words of the Father at Jesus' baptism were reiterated. This is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is my son who fully fulfilled the covenants, all of them. This is my son who completed the purpose of humanity. This is my son who lived a life of participating in me, participating with me, and obeying me. This is my son who fulfilled creation, who fulfilled humanity's calling, and who obeyed my commands perfectly. And because he has done so, I give my approval to him, and I give my approval to all those united to him by faith. You know what that means? Paul said it best in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And this ain't just about you. That he is in that text, it, it seems limiting. That, that he is a new creation can also be translated, there is a new creation. If, for anyone, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Christ's work didn't just remedy an ill. It also fulfilled a divine purpose. When we talk about the arc of scripture, we talk about creation, fall, redemption, consummation. And most of our time is spent talking about that, the little arc of fall and redemption. But brothers and sisters, there is a larger arc. Fallen redemption may take up a majority of the scriptures, but they don't take up most of time. The big arc is creation to consummation. It's who we were created to be linked with who God is going to make sure that we are. And the resurrection of Jesus Christ signals that redemption is done, but it also signals that consummation has begun. Let me say that one more time. The resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us that redemption is done and that consummation has begun. The kingdom of God has broken in. The son of God has emerged from the grave with the keys of death and Hades because death and Hades were able to hold every single human being until Jesus, who through death destroyed the one who has the power of death and, and delivered all those enslaved to the fear of death. Christ fulfilled our human purpose. And now, in union with him, we can actually enjoy it. Brothers and sisters, when we, when we invite you to repent and believe the gospel, we're inviting you to live a truly human life. All life apart from Christ is still human, but it leads to death. But a life in Christ? Athanasius would say that the Son of God became man so that man might become God. Irenaeus said that the Son of God became as we are so that he might bring us to be 
what he himself is. Now that's not saying that the create the creator creature distinction is 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 done away with. What it's saying is that the the relationship that God has called you to with himself is deeper than anything than you could ever imagine. And that's what Christ in dying for our sins, that's what Christ is doing. He's called us to live a human life which is the life of communion with God, participation with God in the cultivation of creation and obedience to God. So what does this mean for you? It means that if you are in Christ, you know and can pursue your purpose. Woman, man, child, black, white, Hispanic, Latino, Asian, indigenous, gay, lesbian, straight, trans, all those categories. In Christ, you can enjoy communion with God daily through his word, by his spirit, and through communion with his people. You can enjoy participation with him in the cultivation of creation. If you're, if you're a mother or father at home with your kids, if you're taking care of your parents, your care for them is precisely that or divinely ordained work of cultivation. If you're a lawyer, doing, doing that work justly is the divinely ordained work of cultivation. If you're a janitor, a doctor, a student, a small business owner, doing that, doing that work well is the divinely ordained work of cultivation. You can even, by the Spirit, obey the Lord's commands. In Christ, you become fully human because he was. And in becoming fully human, you enter into a relationship with God that you have never imagined. You see, you were, you, we were we were kept from the tree of life because of our sin. But our access will be restored upon Christ's return. The angels will show us the tree of life on both sides of the river of the water of life. The tree with 12 kinds of fruit for every month. The tree with leaves for the healing of the nations. There will be no more digs at your dignity because of your chronic pain, because of your race or ethnicity in a racialized world, because of any of the multiple things that people use to oppress and demean one another. No, the Lord will complete the work that he has begun in you. Consummation is coming. But also, brothers and sisters, consummation is here. And so when we, after this, after this coming song, when we, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. I want us to remember that you're being nourished with eternal food. That by faith, you are a partaker in the body and blood of the Savior with all of its benefits. This is what's called mystical union with Christ. This is the gift that the Lord has, has ex extends to each of us. He wants to join us to himself so that we can truly be who God created us to be. And when you eat of that meal, when you live the Christian life, when you're a beacon of the gospel to those around you, when you're a beacon of this future, you are pointing to the day when you will see him face to face. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. This is what you were created for. This is what you're called to.
This is what obedience looks like. Repent and believe the gospel and become truly human. Pray with me.